They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari, and this is Salt the Podcast. Welcome to Salt the Podcast. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. My guest today is Marion O'Hara, the author of the memoir Little Matches, Finding Light in the Dark, which has been published by HarperCollins. Little Matches was inspired by a blog that Marion kept while her daughter Caitlin was waiting for a lung transplant, because Caitlin was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at the age of two. Cystic fibrosis is a genetic condition. It's caused by a faulty gene that affects the movement of salt and water in and out of cells. It causes a salt imbalance in the body, which mainly affects mucus-producing organs like lungs and the pancreas. Healthy lungs are slippery, sterile. Cystic fibrosis lungs are sticky and harbor bacteria, which cause infections and which slowly render lung tissue non-functioning. Marianne's family story, as she tells it in Little Matches, has been featured in the New York Times, the Time Magazine, the Boston Globe, Psychology Today, and is also a People Magazine book of the week. It is Marion's way of making sense in order to live. Marion is also the author of Cascade, a novel, and many short stories and articles. She holds an MFA in creative writing, has taught creative writing at the college level, and was a longtime fiction editor at the Boston Literary Journal Plugshares. After many years of volunteering with the sick, in 2019, she trained as a certified end-of-life doula at the University of Vermont's Larner College of Medicine, so she could better speak to the state of end-of-life care in our culture. Marian lectures on topics including chronic illness, bereavement, and secular spirituality, and with two other medical memoirists, speaks to why medicine needs memoir at medical ground rounds programs at hospitals around the U.S. In this episode, we speak about motherhood, grief, death, Caitlin's legacy. We learn about the work of an end-of-life doula and the importance of legacy work. And we speak about Marion. Who is she? And of course, as always, much more. Welcome, Marianne, to Salt the Podcast. I'm very happy that you're here with us today, and I want to thank you for speaking to us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Ooh, myself. Um, I have been a writer for most, well, for all of my life, but I really went into it with, uh, with a vengeance in my thirties. I had a very early midlife crisis. Um, I, we had, I had married very young and my husband and I had a child really quickly without planning it. And then it turned out she had a very serious chronic illness. I was doing technical writing to make money and I turned 30 and I said to myself, you need to get your life back on the path it was meant to be on. And I went to graduate school, um, met lifelong friends, started writing seriously for publication. I was an editor at a literary magazine, always fiction. Um, and I balanced that with the, the needs that my daughter had. She had cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic lung disease. And it's a funny disease because it's usually pretty invisible. 
but you can be going along living a normal life and then suddenly end up in the hospital for two weeks and all your plans change. So we, we always lived with that kind of chronic uncertainty that went along with chronic illness. And I balanced taking care of her with my writing and never, I was always a fiction writer, never had any desire to write the personal. And then Caitlin finally reached the point that she needed a lung transplant. She waited far too long. She did not survive her surgery. And I just went into this real pit of despair. And so when you ask like who I am, I really had to ask myself that for a long time after her passing. I I cried so much in those early months that I developed eye infections. She was my person. You know, I think we all have a person in life and she was my person for from the beginning, we got along really well and we didn't live in each other's pockets, but we were really close. And I just loved her so much. I, it, even though I, she lived with a life-threatening illness, I was able to live in the moment and put any fears off into the future and do everything I possibly could for her while, while she was alive. And um, I really, I really didn't really know who I was anymore. I kind of had an identity crisis. And I, the only thing that felt good was writing. And I wrote on my blog, just out into the ether, sharing stories, real stories of how it was to grieve. And I got a lot of really great feedback from strangers who said that reading my stories helped them cope with their own medical and emotional mental health issues. And I should write a book. (laughs) And I thought, oh, I've never written my own personal story. Hmm. And Literally nine months after her passing, I I went for a walk around the famous Walden Pond here in Massachusetts and decided that writing the personal had become necessary. And I decided at least I could do this. I could write a book for other people, for Caitlin, share who she was, share her story. And then I also realized that I didn't want to write a book about her disease or about grief. In that really the story, the narrative arc of the story was me, first of all, recording my my grief journey in real time, but also looking for answers to the big life questions, which had kind of always plagued me anyway. So I found myself going back to the person I was as, as a child, actually, the person who would spend hours in the woods, who literally I remember talking to trees and saying things to my mother when I was about three years old and my mother saying, who told you that? And I would say the trees told me. And I I looked back on all that and I thought, my goodness, this world is so magical and full of mystery. Being in nature makes me feel better. Writing about all the synchronicities and signs I'm receiving is fascinating. So I kind of went off on this journey with the book to look for answers like, where is she? Is she? Is there more to life than this life? Does consciousness survive death? Um, Does our existence serve any purpose? And that was how my book came to be. And now I'm at the, you know, the book came out and I do a lot of speaking about it and I love speaking about it and Caitlin and helping other people. Um, And I'm back to writing fiction again. So I guess that's who I am. Sort of. <laughs> that was a long, that was long-winded, but there you go. No. And we will, of course, go into different things you, you just mentioned. 
I find it interesting what you said after nine months um, after your daughter passed away, you decided mm -hmm. to to write the book. And of course, not every child stays nine months in a mom's womb, but I find the, the nine months really interesting that mm -hmm. as if, I don't know, you had to birth her again, maybe, or it, it exactly. really caught my attention, my attention right now. And um, a big subject also on salt is motherhood. And I always say motherhood comes in all kinds of forms and there are different forms of mothers and motherhood. And you already shared a little bit with us how motherhood came to you. Maybe you can share a little bit with us a little bit more about this journey and also what motherhood means to you. Sure. Uh, motherhood is really an interesting topic for me, as obviously it is for you as well. I was a really reluctant mother. I was the oldest of six children, and it was a very sort of busy, chaotic household, and there was a lot of child tending left to me. I had no desire for kids. I was never that girl or young woman who said, oh, I can hardly wait to have babies. I really didn't think I wanted kids. <laughs> and when we got pregnant, it was unexpected, very unexpected. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what if I don't bond with the baby? What if I don't like it? I really worried about that. And I knew I would be a kind person, but I worried that I wouldn't feel an attachment. And then the baby book said, oh, don't worry. Not everyone feels a bond right away. So don't worry about it. So I didn't, I was really young. I, I didn't really worry about anything. I definitely didn't worry that she might not be healthy. Mm. That never even crossed my mind. That's how like young and naive I was. And when she was born, I was just like, very like, kind of matter of fact, like, okay, the baby's born, but she was screaming. She was screaming and crying and they brought her over to me and they put her on my chest. And as soon as I said, hi, Caitlin, she stopped crying. And the nurse said, she knows who you are. And I was like, what? Like the fact that she knew who I was, I immediately, immediately fell in love. Like talk about bonding. It happened like that. And it was forever. I was enchanted with her and just loved her so much. But I was also kind of as a mother, um, pretty practical. I didn't want her to define herself by her disease. Definitely figured I'll do everything I can for her everything possible. And then once all that's done, we put it in a box. She is not a CF person. She is not any of that. She is her own person. I wanted her to be independent. And she was independent until she needed her lung transplant. She lived independently. She had a th thriving career. She had a really serious, wonderful boyfriend. So she had a, she, she had a really good balance. And I, I just like to think that was my practical nature too, like helping to mother Like, for example, I never really believed in parents, like, pretending they never smoked cigarettes or mm. did drugs. Like, yeah. you know, like I think it's more powerful to say, oh, God, I smoked cigarettes. What a jerk. I thought I would be able to quit. It was so hard. So, you know, I guess I was more of a practical, loving mother who really wanted her to be independent. I wanted her to have her own life. Mm -hmm. And as close as we were, like I said, we didn't live in each other's pockets. But boy, do I, boy, do I miss her because there are just so many things to tell her. Yes. And and what I find important, what you said, you said, I never really wanted to have kids. It was not like, let's say, on my top 10 list of things yeah. to do. It happened unexpected. And then you also said, I never thought I would have um, a sick child. And 
there's so many things about motherhood, and of course, things are changing um, that we don't think about, we don't know. It is this whole romantic idea of, oh, you're pregnant, mm. and let's uh, have a baby shower, and oh, this is so beautiful. And we don't talk about things like, okay, I mean, I'm not saying you need to spoil the moment, obviously, but right. there are so many things that, that that we don't talk about when it comes to to motherhood, to birth, to children, to being a parent. What does it mean for your relationship and so many other things? Yeah. And also what you just said. Yeah, when I listen to you, it's so beautiful. You say she was my person. Um, I didn't pretend to be a saint or to be this, I don't know, innocent mother who has never done anything wrong. And um you you already said it like your daughter was born with uh, cystic fibrosis and maybe if you want you can share a little bit with the audience what does it mean and as a result of it everything you went through as a family you also wrote the book little matches and you say on your on your website that and you said it also right now that it started with a block that you kept while your daughter Caitlin was waiting for a lung transplant and you say on your website When she was very young, she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, actually on her second birthday. She was fascinated by the moon that year and had no idea that she had just been diagnosed with an invisible disease that would eventually take her life. Yeah. Living with chronic uncertainty and fear became a way of life for us. It took its toll, of course, but it also produced some marvelous benefits. Carpe diem, live in the moment, cherish what you have while you have it. Then later on on your website, you say, That you started um, writing the blog, right, for um, friends and families, and you received a lot of support, a lot of messages, and also Caitlin's story became, yeah, kind of well-known nationwide. And you say that life without Caitlin has been excruciating and heightened, and there has been great confusion, but also great clarity. When you lose what's most important to you, pretty much everything else falls away and you are left with the fact of yourself still existing in a world that must make sense if you are to continue living in it. Little Matches was my way of making sense in order to live. Could you share with us a little bit more about this? Oh, yes. Certainly nothing made sense and writing the book was my way of, of, of trying to make sense of the fact that I was still left alive and I had to move forward. The thought of, you know, 20, 30, 40 more years of my life with Caitlin being somebody who was 20 years ago, like even now that that mm. thought horrifies me. It really does. I think it's the passing of time that disturbs me so much. And by writing a book, I'm able to, I love, I love books. I love the idea of making a record of something and having it exist. I love that the book as long as books exist, can be in a library and someone can go and read it. Caitlin's story can matter. I really didn't know what else to do with myself. Writing, I write in the in the book about how when I was a child, the first bout of with grief that I had was when my little dog was hit by a car. I was probably about first grade and I came home in, in this news and I can remember the horrible, horrible grief. I, it, I, it felt unbearable. I didn't know how I was going to to deal with it. And the first thing I did was sit down and write a little book about the dog, mm. you know, my little printing and drawing, drawing pictures of them and stapling it all together. And that was the only, that for me, and I think it's important for everyone to sort of go with whatever works for them when they are dealing with something like profound grief. For me, it was writing. 
And it was the only, it, when I say it was the only thing that helped, it was the only thing that got me up off the floor for the time I wrote a blog post. And then when I was writing the book, I really, I just, when I said it kind of saved me, I really couldn't function. And even writing the book was hard. It took me two months to write 10 pages. And I would set a timer every day, write for half an hour. And then every Monday I would send my pages to a writer friend who promised to expect them and keep me honest. Mm. And in that half hour was really all I could do in the beginning because the rest of the time I was literally like lopping from one surface to another, crying, 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 getting those eye infections. I do, I give a talk with a lot of slides and images and I have a picture where I say, you know, I talk about invisible illness because Caitlin lived with invisible illness most of her life. She looked young and healthy and beautiful when she, when her lung function was 20% and invisible illness, invisible, we all have it with an invisible something. Hmm. And I really try to remind myself of that when I'm quick to judge strangers or people out on the street, whatever, because I show this picture of myself where I say, I know I looked like I was functioning because I was functioning. I could take a shower. I could go to the grocery store, but inside I was literally ready to die. I really did not want to be alive. I wasn't going to kill myself, but if it had been really easy to do, I might have. I'm serious. Like it was Hmm. at one point, my husband said to me, I was, I was so depressed and I had been writing the book um, for about six months at that point and everything just seemed worse than ever. And it was the same week that Anthony Bourdain killed himself mm-hmm. and um, Kate Spade. And I remember just confessing to my husband that I really wished I could die. And he said, listen, bud, there's plenty of time to be dead. And I wrote about that moment in the book because it was, it was kind of a, a powerful statement because I thought he's absolutely right. And of course, a few days later, I was, I let myself look at a bunch of old videos of Caitlin and we used to joke all the time and we were just like doing these really funny, silly things. And I was like laughing so hard at heart and it felt really good to laugh. And I remember thinking, wow, I wanted to be dead a couple of days ago and now I'm laughing and I feel happy. And as I was talking about the fact that I was looking for answers, like, I also know that we are all temporary, you know, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. So I try to keep that in mind too, like this long view, this perspective of it was never guaranteed forever. Nothing's guaranteed forever. And I knew that and I and I needed to explore that more and, and really look to see, are we going to die and that's it? Or am I going to find information that will let me think that she is perhaps still out there in some form? So that was um, a project for me. and that kept me going too. So I think Caitlin said it, maybe I'm wrong now when, when I looked um, at the YouTube trailer on your website, right? That Mm -hmm. despite the fact that we know that we are not here forever. Right. And which of course, to all of us somehow is a scary thought. We keep living. Right. Right. She said that to her friend, Jess, when her best friend was diagnosed amazingly crazily with breast cancer while Caitlin was waiting for her lung transplant someone who was running a marathon and discovered a lump in her breast completely, you know, seemed like healthy. And she, I have this great email that just shared with me um, that Caitlin wrote to her just going over, Hey, we just don't know. 
you know, a young girl, they, we are, one of Caitlin's favorite places was this Island of St. John. And Caitlin said, you know, this young girl on St. John died yesterday in a moped accident. A couple of days ago, we would have been looking at her photos and we would have been jealous. And now she's dead and we're not Jess, we're not dead. And I think from having to live with quest with, you know, knowledge of her mortality, her whole life, she, she didn't want to die. That's absolutely. But she, she was a little bit steely eyed in the face of it. And she did think of bigger issues a lot. What is my purpose? What is my role in this lifetime? Why am I here? That last summer, she actually confessed to Jess that she was afraid. She'd been waiting way too long for a lung transplant at that point. And it's hard to wait every day. It's like rolling a rock Mm. up a hill to keep yourself healthy and in shape for, you know, imagine like replacing your lungs. Imagine having to do that. I mean, there's, there's not much surgery more serious than that. Hmm. And she said she feared that her purpose might be to die, to teach lessons to others, which, you know, upset Jess so much. But I think on some level, she kind of knew. And she has, because my memoir is actually kind of co-authored in many ways by Caitlin, because it's full of her writings. Um, her reflections on life and love and joy and illness and what's it all about, et cetera. So, and I, there was this man who not long after Caitlin's passing, put his arm around my husband one day and just said, Oh, pal, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine. And people always say, I can't imagine. And actually in the first page of my book, I I talk about that. I say, really? You can't imagine? I mean, maybe having a, a sick child lets your mind go into those dark places, but how can yes. you not imagine? I know it's just a saying. I get that. But this particular man said it to my husband that day. And that night, that man went to bed and he had a heart attack and never woke up. Wow. So I, I always just say to people, like, please don't feel sorry for us. You know, we're doing our best here. Caitlin did her best. We're, we're all hopefully doing our best and trying to make our lives as meaningful as possible. And, and that's, my only message for people, like, think about your own life and what will really matter at the end of it. What will really matter? And then focus on that. And, um, you know, I didn't write the book for people to cry or feel sorry for me. I wrote it to inspire because I know Caitlin is an inspirational person. I did cry a bit though, I have to admit. Well, I think it's impossible not to cry. She's also... Caitlin also loved a good cry. She loved a good cry. She thought it was very cathartic. Yes, exactly. That's how I look at it. I do yes. too. And it's a way also to connect. And and I mean, I want to say so many things now after everything you said. I hope I will remember. For instance, the, the, this man that he said to your husband, I cannot imagine. I think it's also the fact we don't talk about loss in our society a lot. We don't talk about grief. Even tears is not always welcome, right? Right. And like why not cry? You know, I always tell my kids crying is something we do and we share it together. And it's an emotion that can connect, that can cleanse us. Just let it happen. You know, if you feel like crying, it don't yes. suppress it. It's a human and thing. Exactly. You exactly. able to cry. So yes, you're so sorry yes. to say that to your children. Yes. And I think when, when I look also at your book, at the talks that you give, at the different articles that have appeared in, in different newspapers and so on, you're also somehow teaching us how to deal with grief, you know, by saying 
don't say this. I, I cannot imagine. Yeah, you can imagine. And if you can, if you cannot imagine, which I also don't believe, don't say it. Like also right. how to deal with grief. And, and as you said, also in your book, it's a combination of many different things. You have letters, emails from Caitlin in the book, right? Dialogues mm -hmm. between her and the nurse, you, your own story, your own childhood, your own memories, um, your feelings. It's, it's, and, and I want to later go a little bit more into this. But you said also you were going on a quest, like, where is Caitlin? Mm -hmm. She's still here. Do you have an answer? Like, where is she for you? I think everyone has to come to their own sort of decision when it comes to that kind of knowing that, I mean, some people have a faith, a religious faith, and, and they don't question it. I certainly always did. I felt myself to be an agnostic with a lot yeah. of questions. But I also was very interested in in that whole other world. And so I, you know, what happened, what really happened, and it happened right before while Caitlin was in the ICU, I started receiving a lot of really crazy signs and synchronicities, things that seemed to be pointing toward the fact that she was going to be okay. And in hindsight, I, I think they were signs that were telling me to be prepared, and that all would still be okay, but just not in the way that I had hoped. But one of the things that really happened was um, when she was in the ICU, it looked really dire. And my husband said, Jess had arrived to sit bedside with her. And my husband said, Let, come on, come, get in the car. I'm going to take you down home to get a shower. And we he merged onto the highway and this huge red tail hawk came literally flying right up into the windshield toward my face to the point that I covered my head with my hands and screamed. I thought this bird is going to fly right into my face. I'd never experienced anything like it went up over the car and we just looked at each other like, what the hell was that? What was that? And I thought, wow, like that must be a sign. I mean, it just felt biblical. It was crazy. And then after her death, the hawks were everywhere, everywhere. And one day a friend of mine came to visit and I opened the back door to let her, to, to greet her. And suddenly there was this rustling of wings right over our head. And it was like a, this red tail hawk had been sitting on my roof. And she she just put her hand on my arm. And she said, I'm so glad I was here to witness that. It would have been really hard to believe. It was like that hawk was waiting for you and wanted to like give you a message. And I said, they are, they are happening all the time. Just yesterday, I posted a thing on Instagram where a friend of mine said he was listening to my audiobook. And he was driving down Route 61, listening to the part where I talked about the hawk on the roof. And he said, and your words kind of lingered in the air. And on coming in the other direction was a big like truck. And it had the big four letters hawk on top of it. And I said <laughs> out loud, you got to be kidding me. And I can't tell you, like, the hawks are just one small example. But I've had readers that I've never even met say, write to me at my author address and say, I finished reading your book. I'm sitting on my porch. I closed my eyes and I heard this wrestling and a hawk was flying over. I mean, even people I don't know tell me they get my signs. And I think it's just really funny, but um, there have been even crazier ones. I mean, a hawk, birds are often signs that people seem to get when loved ones have passed, but there've been a lot of like really funny ones too. So to answer your question, I have come to believe that it's not that much of a stretch to imagine that there's more to existence than this particular reality of a, a single lifespan on earth, because the single lifespan on earth is 
is pretty freaking amazing if you think about it. Like the fact that we exist and all of nature is in such beautiful or should be in such beautiful balance. And we don't know how we came to be or or why. I think it I think uh opening yourself up to the mystery is not a bad idea. And I give a talk where I tell people, um, I basically say, I give, you know, a bunch of my fun examples with all the pictures I've taken. And I say, the bottom line is synchronicities exist. Don't really know how or why they exist, but they do exist and they can comfort you. Why not let them comfort you? So, but I think you have to find your aunt. Everyone has to find their answers. Mm. Themselves. So for me, I've got a knowing, am I a hundred percent sure of anything? No. Am I 99% sure? Yeah, I kind of am. And I feel Caitlin, um, I feel her presence in the on the left side of my head. It feels like electrified bubble wrap. And when wow. it first started happening, it's, the first time it happened, I I knew it was her, but I was also scared that there was something wrong with my brain and that I was imagining it. And the more it happened, I was more, I was worried about my brain, but I got checked out and I'm fine. <laughs> it's not my brain. Yes. So it's interesting stuff. And there's a whole world out there too. That's pretty fascinating of um, a lot of fakes and a lot of people who are pretty legit working in the, the sort of spiritual. That's realm. what you call secular spirituality, right? Um, yes. Yes. Somewhat. You know, there are so many people now who do not ascribe to any religion, Yeah, but certainly feel themselves to be spiritual people. And That seems to be more common than anything. My husband grew up in Ireland and, you know, the Catholic church was, was hard on people and mm. consequently, and they did a lot of bad things. And consequently, Catholic church doesn't have the power there that it used to. And people, but it doesn't mean that people aren't spiritual. They've just found their, their own way of being spiritual and connecting with the earth, et cetera. Yes. The energies. Mm-hmm. Another result let's say of what you experienced as a family and after your daughter uh, passed away you decided to become an end-of-life doula mm -hmm. and um, can you share a little bit more with us what is this um, sure. what kind of work do you do and also tell us about the significance of legacy work sure well I'd always I've always been a volunteer of one kind or another and I My most recent volunteering before Caitlin got sick was working, um, was volunteering in hospital in Boston. And I really liked being with the people who were really sick because they just seemed, you know, there's no baloney and they seem to really appreciate, you know, the time you would give them as opposed to someone who's just had a baby and is very self-involved in a good way, you know, as, as it should be. But I was always more interested in dealing with the, the sick and the people in the ICU and people with cancer, et cetera. And I always wanted to do hospice volunteering. Um, when Caitlin was actually waiting for her transplant, I, I spent time volunteering with this man who was, who was living with end-stage ALS. And it was really, really powerful and meaningful. And I really knew I, I was cut out for it. But I wrote my book. And then after the book went off to the publisher in the fall of 19, I took this course. I had, I had never heard of an end of life doula and it's kind of a new sort of feel but just like a birth doula yes i did have a birth doula for mm -hmm. my last child and i it's came a... across you 
because of on Instagram, there was a from the New York Times, I think the article oh, yes. um, yeah. describing the end of life doula and because the word doula for me, I mean, first in Greek, it means slave. So it has a very bad meaning, but right. because I really um, believe in the importance of birth doulas. When I saw the end of life doula, it immediately went straight to my heart. What is that? Because I'm so into the whole do- birthing doula okay. um, um, field. And then I wanted to find out more about it. And that's how I actually found you. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, and it, interesting too, because then I think that article even says that doula means woman who serves. Yeah. And that's certainly the intent. But yeah, it really means slave, as you said. And I, I didn't yeah. know that until yeah. somebody, I think, wrote it in the comments of that New York Times article. And, um, you know, that's unfortunate because obviously it means serving Yeah. in, in the, in the way it's intended to mean for the birth and death purposes, but it's, you know, it's like the other end of the arc. So I did it because I really knew I wanted to speak to the state of end of life care in our culture because I, it's bad. And I certainly saw that yeah. firsthand with my daughter and what a debacle it was at the end. It was horrible. It was really horrible. And there was no plan. And actually, so I do a lot of speaking as well to hospitals where I'm not talking about the signs and synchronicities, but I'm talking about things like the fact that Caitlin's lung transplant evaluation was so comprehensive. It took a week, but it wasn't until after she died that I realized that we had never talked about what would happen if transplant didn't happen. Mm. There was no plan beyond hope. And the doctors aren't trained. Most of them aren't comfortable really Mm -hmm. bringing Mm -hmm. these issues up. So Mm -hmm. consequently, Either good things happen or it just spirals into a mess, like, and that's exactly what happened with us. And, you know, all these desperate last ditch efforts happen. So I knew I would want to be talking about it. So, and I also wanted to volunteer in hospice. So basically an end of life doula, it's not a medical position, although people assume it is, but it's just basically if you could hire or have a volunteer of somebody who was your support person, your administrative assistant to help you with everything and anything that you might need at the end of life. And that would depend on you and your needs as the client. So it might mean help with funeral preparations. It might mean walking the dog. It might mean giving hand massages. What I saw after, you know, basically Caitlin died and we we had to leave the hospital. We had to gather up our week's worth of stuff. We had to function. We had to go on. We had to move back home. We were living in another city. We had to get out of our apartment. All the business of living still needs doing. And you can have a person help you do all of that. And the part that I like the most, obviously being a writer, and interestingly, it's also what my novel that I was writing at the time of Caitlin's Transplant Weight is about, is um, stories, people's life stories. And they don't have to be with people at the end of life or people who are ill. I often encourage people to interview themselves because they're a great tool for self-reflection. But I love legacy work. I love the fact everyone's got a story to tell. And I like sharing tips on how to get somebody else's story, a loved one's story, or like I said, (laughs) interview yourself. And for caregivers, um, I've spoken to medical students and narrative medicine students about life interviews, legacy work, and they're really a great tool to train medical caregivers, providers to really pay attention, to listen, and not um, interrupt, not make assumptions, 
um, to ask clear questions and, and really listen to the answers. So they're they're just good in so many ways. And I really, I give a, this legacy workshop that I really enjoy and people find them valuable. Because also too, and there's a, a difference between like an oral history where you just get all the, you know, sort of data of somebody's life and a life story. So I remember years ago, my brother putting the video camera on my grandmother one Christmas and letting her talk for like five hours. Well, no one has ever gone through and, you know, gone through the weeds with all of that. So I, you know, I tell people have specific questions, keep, you know, have a time limit, et cetera. So lots of little tips. It's fun. It's really fun. People yes. Like and, and and I also liked what you said earlier um, when you were very, very down, crying, even having destructive thoughts. And then a few days later, you watched a video with Caitlin where she was laughing and you started laughing. Yeah. And that also is an example because this is part of her legacy, right? That you can watch that video and, and, and see her. And that's probably the advantage of technology nowadays that when someone passes away, we can listen maybe to voice notes Mm-hmm. Um, to their voice, right? See yeah. videos or um, all kinds of, of, of things that uh, are still with us. And that's also part of the legacy work, right? So it's for the, also f- it's, but it's also for the person who is, who is like about to die, right? Also for right. them, it's well, important, not just for the people who are left behind, right? Exactly. It's, you know, it's something that really suits both parties. And certainly if someone is at end of life, it's a wonderful thing to do if it's never been done before, because sometimes people do have stories they would like to share or messages they would like to to leave. But it doesn't have to be, you know, just for sickness or end of life, for sure. When I was doing the training, I did one with a woman who was in her 50s, who was completely healthy. And, you know, I was, that was just a training sort of thing. And she found it so useful. She said, you know, I, that was really, that really, like when you asked earlier on, like, who, who are you? Tell me who you are. She mm. said, let me really sit down and think like who I am, what's my life mm. philosophy. And I was pretty happy to see, I'm pretty happy with myself. And so, yeah, it, it's good. And and the other thing I do say, when I tell people, I, I encourage them to do a half hour with a loved one and to transcribe it because as wonderful as technology is, and I'm so grateful for, you know, images videos, et cetera, that I have with Caitlin. I mean, we all, if we're old enough, have media that we don't have the equipment to use yeah. anymore. And it's just so easy for it all to sort of disappear into the yeah. ether. So I really encourage transcription and in having, you know, a printed copy of of the interview that people do with a loved one, because it can all just go. It's actually, I mean, funny what you're just saying. I, um, bought two notebooks, one for my mother many years ago. And I told her, can you please create, because she's an amazing cook, Mm. write all your recipes into this notebook with anything else that comes to you, like a smell that you want to share or anything. Good idea. um, To to have it as something to to carry on as her legacy, right? Um, Because there's a lot in food, there's love, there's community, there's coming together. And she's just yeah, she's just so skillful when it comes to these things, always making people feel nice. So I want to, I want this to be preserved. And then uh, this summer I gave a notebook to my father and I told him, do you mind writing stuff about your life into this book so that we can read it later when you are not here anymore? And my dad is not, uh, he was like, really, what do you want me to write? It was a bit like, 
what do I have to say? And I'm like, you're 83. You have a lot to say. You had a full <laughs> life. So, so it's, it's true. Like the, the, the writing is, is also, and it's the handwriting. You, you see somebody's handwriting and yeah, it has, it has, there are so many ways of, of preserving somebody's exactly. legacy and also for them to write these things down, bringing back memories, who knows? So I'm curious if he's going to do it um, at the end. Yeah. You might have to sit down with him, but yeah, I've done them with people who, you know, are kind of like old and crotchety and are like, well, I don't know. I, well, yeah. you know what do you want me to say? And you have to really tease them <laughs> out. So it, it everybody's different for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, it's also a business now. Like I know somebody who just spent like $4,500 having this whole big legacy project done for his mother and you know, it's a video and it's all personalized and it's very fancy and all that. And it's a, and I think they do also provide a book, which I think is the most important thing because at least the book hopefully will stick around, even if the video is like long gone someday. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you can spend a lot of money, but you don't have to. And, and mainly the idea is to get people thinking about it and thinking about end of life in a way that's not scary. Because I think if you think about it and recognize that it's coming and mm. not run away from it, you can more, you can better appreciate the time in the now. Um, I, I saw this. I love TikTok. I think TikTok's a, a lot of fun and all kinds of interesting things I've learned on TikTok. But I saw something yesterday or the day before that this woman said, I, you know, I, I'm a medium. I, 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 I know this to be true, but people are waiting. <laughs> Souls are waiting to get to this planet to have a human experience, to use the five senses really just take your time and appreciate it. And I thought, mm. you know, like smell, eat, mm-hmm. taste, feel, all of it. And I thought, wow, that's just a great message, regardless of what you might believe. And I went, I always go out in the morning and I, I live on a river and I just like to go out and have a moment to reflect before the day starts. And I was down there and I was thinking, yeah, like it's really good to be able to eat food and like your mom's food and to yeah. feel the grass under your feet and to yeah. feel the wet leaves and it is a privilege to be alive. So Absolutely, not a not a bad thing to to sit down and think about. Mm. Yes, I mean, I I came not even a week ago to the island to the village of my father where his roots are because uh-huh. we want to be close to our parents to my parents. Um, I came with my family and because we want to be close to the nature. Exactly what you just described: feeling the sand under your feet, the grass, seeing the mountains, the stars. Wow. This, Exactly what you described. So that yes. is so lovely. Yes. That's wonderful. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. And um, Marian, you also mentioned already a few times your husband, and you mentioned also how care can sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to put it. Like you, you say you 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 give workshops to people how to maybe. Um, deal with people who are about to pass away or how to deal with the relatives of, of people who are um, about to pass away. And my first kid was premature. He was born 800 grams and um, there were a lot of life and death situations. I mean, not comparable to what you experienced with your daughter, but I also saw how the doctors many times were so distant and not really up for emotions. And mm-hmm. um, then my son did cause some emotions in them and then they were running away crying. So we wouldn't see them. But the nurses were so important because they were they became my family. Like I spent three months with them. And okay. we also had a social worker assigned um, to us uh, whom it was voluntarily, but they were really pushing us for it too, with whom we met uh, once a week with my partner. 
for an hour and um, this woman was really kind and I still speak to her once in a while and she really was telling us that in these kind of situations a couple can also easily break up because right. having a sick child takes a heavy toll on you maybe you start blaming each other maybe you forget each other maybe you just live for your daughter or for your son or yeah so that that it does also something to your relationship obviously and you say in your book um after um your daughter has died nick comes in and out i'm careful and kind with him he has lost his daughter too it was also close how was it for you um and your husband and also what i read in the book you obviously i mean you live in the us and i have never experienced the us health system but we hear all kinds of stories and i also read in your book that your husband the moment he realized okay i had to have a sick child and i will have probably to pay a lot of medical bills that he really focused on his work to make mm -hmm. sure that nothing will lack um, mm -hmm. for, for your daughter how yeah feel free to share whatever you want yeah. i don't want to push you in any direction no um it's so complicated um because healthcare here is terrible in so many ways and i I'm grateful that we did always have really good health care, but it was expensive. It was very expensive. And my husband is self-employed. He has his own business. So we paid for it basically, but it was also worth it because it covered everything for the most part. And I'm grateful that we had it, but that's, that is such a mess, but it was complicated because my husband, the way he grew up in Ireland, something bad happened and you wouldn't want to talk about it. You like, for example, <laughs> Caitlin's grandmother in Ireland. I remember she was probably like eight years old and we went into her living room and there was like the vigil light and the candle going and all the pictures of anyone who had died on the wall. And Caitlin was on the wall. She's why, why am I up there with Grandma? Wow. <laughs> but it was because she needed the extra prayers, just like the people who had died. So there, you know, there was this, my, my husband was just part of this culture that when she was diagnosed, he kind of put a wall up hmm. and he went into this focus of, okay, this is what I need to do. And it gave him a job to do. So, you know, it's also been a, a all the years of her being alive was a time of growth for him too, because he had to, you know, kind of come to accept his feelings and not lock them up and let them fester. And when I wrote that part in the book, that was like early days, like right around the time of the funeral, I just remember thinking, I have to be really careful with him because it is easy for people to break up after this kind of loss and blame each other and this and that. And I knew it was really important. And I knew also that I, I've always been the one who was more open with my emotions and writing and all of that. So I knew I had to be extra careful with him and it, it has worked and it has paid off. And he is, he's come to really open up a lot more and it's good. It's interesting. People are so different. I think that's the one good thing too. Like we, you know, we married young and we've kind of just grown up together. I think if we met, I don't I, you know, I can't mm. even imagine like dating now, like having to deal with someone and all the issues, but <laughs> you, you, you know, like, I just feel like we've come to really understand each other. And, and like this morning he said to me, you know, have I ever said thank you for doing my laundry? Like you do the laundry in our house and I'm really appreciative. And I was like, this person <laughs> he actually said that this morning so you know he he's trying I'm trying we keep trying 
because it's only the two of us. We never had any other children. It's a genetic, CF is a genetic disease. Really never wanted to play that roulette mm-hmm. wheel. So, uh, yeah, I think if you love someone and care about them, you just have to do whatever you can. And sometimes that involves bending and keeping your mouth shut and being nice, being kind, as kind as you would be to somebody else, you know? Yeah, that's that's a good one at the end. Sometimes we are kinder to strangers than to our partners. So sometimes I'm also like, why am I doing this to him? I wouldn't do that to whatever. I mean, your friend, whoever, I know. Yeah. It's yeah. so true. We're we're all we all can be guilty of that for sure. <laughs> Thank you for being so open about this as well with me. Thank you. Of course, you you you're a writer. Um, books mean a lot to you. You're also now um, working again on on a new book. Mm-hmm. They're having a bit of a of a pause. Um, is there a piece of writing that um, you would like to share with us today? Well, I have um, a little quote right above my desk that I keep here because people always ask me why I titled my book Little Matches. Mm. And people assume, um, well, they make lots of assumptions, but it's from To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, which mm-hmm. I loved and which Caitlin loved. Caitlin loved Virginia Woolf as a very precocious high school student. I was always kind of proud of that. And there's um, toward the end of To the Lighthouse, she writes, what is the meaning of life? That was all a simple question one that tended to close in on one with the years. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one. I love that. I've always loved that. And the book had a lot of different titles over time, and they all eventually became like section titles and then I finally chose that one as the main title <laughs> but I love it that's beautiful it's a great book I always ask my my uh the people I speak with who has been your sold and <laughs> um sold for you I guess also because of your daughter's um disease because it has something to do with the salt in the body right yeah when I first heard from you I actually yeah. thought it had something to do with cystic fibrosis because salt is uh CF is caused by a salt, a genetic, genetic salt imbalance that m- renders uh, the mucus in the lungs very thick and sticky and prone to infections that destroy the lungs over time. One of the reasons why my podcast is called Salt is because it salt keeps us alive, like salt and water. It's it's really important for us. Mm-hmm. And I always say, be the salt. So your daughter, for me, is the salt because right. of everything she did and she's still doing and the way she's bringing people together, her legacy. Um, yeah. In all kinds of ways through the emails you're receiving through her friend, having a foundation in Kenya, right. Um, yes. Where she's uh, yeah. Where she's working in Caitlin's name. So your daughter for me is the salt, like how she I is. see it. And when I read actually about um, her disease, I was like, Oh my God, like there is a reason why we are talking with each other, you know, <laughs> I my know. podcast is salt, salt is life. I always say be the salt, you know, mm-hmm. we need the salt to live. Salt is the ingredient in food that is everywhere. It's in the seeds and the water. So right. for me, yes, it it was also kind of like, oh, okay, there's a connection here. So I guess your daughter is your salt. Absolutely. And she still is and always will be. I 
you know, I'm going on to work on my novel again, but I plan to talk about her and all the issues I speak to in my book for as long as anyone would like to listen to me because she is inspiring. Her story is inspiring. Our story is inspiring. I do know that. And uh, I love seeing what comes of people saying when, when someone says, I remember when she was waiting for her transplant, this woman, my novel that had come out right before Caitlin's transplant wait was about the art, the art world, basically. And this woman wrote to me and I kept her letter printed out and up over my computer that whole time we were waiting because she said she had always wanted to have a career in art and she hadn't, she had always felt like she had to be more responsible. And she said, I finished your book this week and I retired from my job. I'm like 62 years old and I am going to go to art school. She said, never underestimate the power of your art to change lives. Hmm. And that, that really struck home with me. And because, you know, you do send these messages out into the world and you don't know if or how they are received, but they are, and you have to have faith that they are. And it's wonderful when you do know that you've made a difference. This young woman came to an event I did a couple of weeks ago and she just said, I've read Little Matches five times. I can't thank you enough. I love this book so much. You and Kaylin have changed my life. And I, I, I said, thank you. I'm so happy to know that. It means the world to know that you could have like lifted someone else up out of despair. Do you have, I mean, you shared many messages with us, but do you have, and, and very important ones, do you have something that is really important to you? I always say, to whom do you want to pass the salt? Do you want to say something specific to somebody to, um, yeah. Well, I do. I just, I have to say, I have, I, I have such a love and admiration for young women, especially, but young people in general anyway. I I kind of feel like I'm a mother to so many younger people and I love encouraging them. And there just seems to be so much more of an awakening um, with people. And I, and I know the pandemic had a lot to do with that. In the pandemic, I'm really sorry for all the hardship it caused, obviously, and for the deaths that it caused. But like anything, there's a balance of good and bad and I think it really made a lot of people really stop and say, hey, this is my life. What am I doing with my life? And I'm all for that kind of reflection and self-awareness and determination to really figure out what your path is supposed to be and, and get, get yourself on it. A nice salty path. <laughs> but I have to say, when I was writing with you, I did feel this, what you just described, how you see yourself. And again, it's like, breaking this whole idea of motherhood just being this one thing right mm -hmm. you, you can be a mother to many and th these don't have to be your biological children you know no. so I, I I felt it just also in our email communication what you just described and it was so beautiful yes. writing with you you know and, and feeling this so yeah I'm happy to hear that the person yes. who never thought she wanted kids just yeah. ends up loving them all which is which is great and I'm fortunate to have a lot of them in my life a lot of really great young people. Yes. I love them. Yes. And thank you today for uh, speaking on salt and for all the important work that you do for your daughter, the work she's, she's doing in all of us. And yes. Um, yes. Thank you also for everybody, to everybody for listening. Of course, you, you can very much. follow Marianne on Instagram. You can buy her book, Little Matches. 
reach out to her if you have questions. Yeah. And if you enjoyed the episode, you can share it with others. And thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for today. Thank you very, very much. Really lovely to meet you. Something that is loved is never lost. I'm Stella Sagliari and this is Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast.